Hey, Scott here. Thanks for joining us on the Flyover Country podcast. Really grateful for you listening. Grateful for all the people who are downloading the show, engaging with us on social media. Leave us a review. Please give us a good rating. Uh, we're very excited to bring this content to you. Uh, and today's content I'm particularly excited about. It's U.S. Senator Rob Portman of Ohio, who I think is one of the finest people in American public service today. Of course, he's in the Senate. He is retiring and leaving office at the end of next year. He previously served in the U.S. House. He was United States Trade Representative. He was also Director of the Office of Management and Budget in George W. Bush's administration. He has been an all-star public servant in the truest sense of the word at every step of the way in his career. In our interview today, I focused on Rob Portman's legacy. And one of the biggest legacy pieces, I think, is bipartisanship on major issues. We talked a lot about his work on the opioid and addiction crisis, some of the bills he's been able to pass, and what is the prognosis for other legislation that could pass in the near future here as he works across the aisle to do that. We talked about the nature of bipartisanship in the Senate and is he concerned about the political environment. We talked about the recent infrastructure bill that he was uh, crucial in passing in the Congress and also his work in the 2017 tax cut bill that passed under President Donald Trump. We talked about his views on the Republican Party and what the party has to stand for uh, to win in the midterms and beyond. And finally, in the famous lightning round, I ask Rob Portman, is the family hotel in Lebanon, Ohio, actually haunted? You will want to hear the answer to this question. Rob Portman, U.S. Senator for Ohio, is our guest on this week's Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. Attention passengers, we ask that you please fasten your seatbelts at this time and secure all baggage underneath your seat or in the overhead compartments. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is prepared for takeoff. Thanks for being with us on the Flyover Country podcast. It's my great honor to have on the show this week, Rob Portman, Senator from the great state of Ohio. Senator Portman, thanks for joining us this week. Yeah, thanks for having me on. All right. Uh, glad to have you here. Uh, but I'm also a little sad to have you here because one of the reasons you're here is that you're retiring from the United States Senate. And I personally think you've been one of the most important leaders for our country for the last uh, couple of decades. And you've been one of the most important people in the Senate in terms of driving actual solutions uh, to problems, which is something routinely you hear voters say that they want. One of the topics I wanted to discuss, I think, is one of your biggest legacy points, and that is the federal government finally getting involved in dealing with the national drug epidemic, the overdose crisis, the opioid crisis, and not just on the enforcement end, but on the recovery end and getting people off of drugs, recovered, and then back to work. Ohio, of course, like a lot of states in flyover country, uh, has been hit hard by this. I heard there was a very personal and, and specific reason this first caught your interest, and I thought we might start there. Uh, you heard from a constituent about this, did you not? Yeah, I did. Um, and I hadn't planned to talk about this, uh, but I, I happened to keep in my briefcase, <laughs> I can find it here, a gold ID bracelet that was presented to me in 1995. <clears throat> and here it is. Um, and it has a name on it. It says Jeffrey Gardner. And Jeff Gardner's mom came to Washington to meet with me. And she also went to, to meet with President Clinton at the time. That really dates us. And she presented us each with a gold uh, ID bracelet, which I've kept with me. And uh, Jeff Gardner had died of an overdose for son about a month before that. He was 
smoking dope and uh, huffing gasoline uh, were, were, were his drugs of choice, but you know, it could have been more recently opioids. And uh, she came and said, what the heck are you guys doing about this? And of course I had all my answers ready for her uh, about how much the federal government's involved with interdiction of drugs and drug enforcement and prosecutions. And she said, how does that help me in my community? And that got me thinking, you know, this is a national problem. At that time, it seemed like a huge national problem. Today, it's much worse and has been for the past few decades. But uh, we got involved in these community anti-drug coalitions. As a result, I passed legislation with Newt Gingrich's support that set up uh, about 2,000 anti-drug coalitions around America uh, with a matching uh, contribution from the local communities, from all the sectors of the community. Think of the media, the you know, free media in Cincinnati. We've got a great coalition that I founded, gosh, uh, 25 years ago or so, it's still going strong, but also from the business community and from the faith community, uh, the healthcare community and so on. So that was a different way to look at it from a Republican point of view. We'd always been focused on kind of the supply side and how to focus on law enforcement. This is about how do you reduce demand through prevention? And I think those have worked uh, well to keep the rates from being as high as they would have been. But then, as you know, we got hit with this opioid crisis. And that uh, went across your state of Kentucky. I'm looking behind you at Louisville there and, and my state of Ohio, starting in Southern Ohio. A great book, I think you probably read by Sam Quinones about yep. this epidemic and kind of how it started. And uh, the point made is that people got addicted to prescription drugs and then moved to heroin uh, and other drugs, synthetic opioids, because they were more available and less expensive and just a lot of overdoses and deaths that could have been avoided. And the prescription drug companies are paying for that now, as you know. But meanwhile, the issue has now moved on to these synthetic opioids. And so I gave a speech on the floor this week, um, and it's about 40 minutes long. So if you, if, if you have a tough time getting to sleep, uh, you might want to try looking at it. But seriously, it goes into great detail about how we got to where we are and what we need to do now. And uh, the federal government did get engaged about four or five years ago. And for the first time in a few decades, we actually saw a reduction in overdose deaths, which is one way to measure it. Um, and really the only measurement that we have is the number of people who die from an overdose. And, and that was good news. You know, after three decades of increases every year, we actually saw a substantial decrease in Kentucky. In Ohio, we had a 22% decrease in Ohio. That was 2018, 2019 was also a good year. And then the pandemic hit at the same time you had this big increase in synthetic opioids coming across the southern border. You know, Scott, there's a lot of talk about how the southern border is a crisis or not. It's a crisis, both in terms of people and drugs. And on the drug side, it's the synthetic opioids, relatively small volumes of which can kill you, uh, that are increasing dramatically. 42% increase in seizures last month alone. Border Patrol tells me when I've been down there, the vast majority of it's getting through. Um, and they've seized enough to kill every man, woman, and child in America this year alone. So it's, it's, it's a huge problem made worse by the fact that this stuff is just flooding into our communities now at very low prices. Um, and it's, it's deadly. It can be in anything. They're making it into pills. Mexico uh, has become kind of the center of this. They're pressing pills that might say Xanax on them, an antidepressant. They might say Percocet, which is a, a common uh, opioid pain reliever. But in fact, it's fentanyl, and it's killing people. So. To our viewers today, just be really cautious, be on alert. Don't take anything that's not from a pharmacy. And uh, any street drug you use now can have fentanyl laced into it and, and can kill you. So uh, that's the challenge we've got. We need to get the federal government back more engaged again on 
prevention, treatment, recovery, and of course, on the supply side, uh, keeping this poison from coming in. Well, let me just ask you, you say you've been to the border and you've talked to the border patrol and, and how big of a problem that is. Uh, in your interactions with the Biden administration, do you feel like they understand the level of seriousness uh, that this problem presents America? And are they working to your satisfaction to deal with it? I mean, it appears to some of us that uh, they don't they don't take these border issues quite as seriously as uh, uh, as maybe we Republicans do. Yeah, they they, they don't. And I think for them uh, and I'm sure you've spoken to them yourself uh, and can have them on, on your show. But for them, they very much want to have a more what they would consider humane policy, letting more people into the United States. And that results in more and more people saying, okay, I can come to the border and I can get in. Uh, I'm going to do that. They've done it in huge numbers. So we have record numbers of people who came in October last month, uh, more than any October in the history of our country. And with those people come some good people and some folks who are, you know, bringing drugs in and they're going to kill our, our neighbors. And, uh, and these drugs can be brought in a backpack, you know, relatively small quantities and yet be very lucrative uh, for those couriers. So the traffickers, the coyotes, the you know the, the people that are exploiting these individuals to bring them in are making a lot of money. And uh, the border patrol, you know, has a really simple approach to this. They just want us to give them the resources to put a, a good barrier in place with technology. It's not just about a barrier; it's technology on the key parts of the border. We were almost there, and then the Biden administration came in and stopped it. And they want policies that won't tell people, "Hey, if you come to the border, you can get in," and indefinitely because. People either don't show up at their court dates or their court date is four or five, six years later. And by that time, they're totally embedded in, in the community. So it's a it's bad policy right now that's leading to different results at the border. And it's not just about people. It's also about these illegal drugs. And it's not just synthetic opioids. So that's the biggest single killer. Uh, and Scott, most of the people dying in Kentucky and Ohio right now are dying from this one drug fentanyl, which is a synthetic opioid, but also crystal meth is coming over the border, heroin's coming over the border, cocaine's coming over the border, as it never has, as far as we can tell. And this is something that I, I wish the Biden administration would take more seriously. Uh, it's an opportunity for bipartisanship, too. And I know you want to talk a little about that, but we just passed an infrastructure bill that was a model of how you can work together on both sides of the aisle, you know, make some concessions, but come up with something good for the country. Well, the border is a place where as I've told many of my Democratic friends, how can you possibly believe this is sustainable to have hundreds of thousands of people coming over every month and have the drugs coming over? And, and you know, privately, they agree with that. And so we had to figure out how to come together and come up with a sensible and humane policy that respects the sovereignty of this country and keeps out the people who are coming illegally and the people who are bringing in these terrible poisons in our community. You brought up the, the topic of bipartisanship on this, and you have been a leader in bringing both parties together to tackle this. The Comprehensive Addiction and Recovery Act, CARA, uh, you and Senator Whitehouse and many others uh, from both parties worked on that. We spent a lot of money on uh, more resources for this problem. I think right now you have some uh, legislation with Senator Whitehouse called the Excellence in Recovery Housing Act to boost <laughs> a housing nationwide for those that are in recovery. So you have a record, a long track record of trying to build bipartisan consensus around this. I guess I'd like to hear a little bit about whether you think in the short or midterm, we could see bipartisan work further on the addiction issue. And then generally, as you uh, are going into the final year of your uh, Senate service, are you concerned uh, that the Senate is losing its ability to work together on big issues like that, especially ones like this one, where 
you know, truly lives are at stake. Yeah. Well, I think there is an opportunity to do four or five things right now that are bipartisan. Um, you mentioned the housing issue. This is something where we know that if you can get somebody into longer term recovery, the chances of success are much greater. So people go through a short term treatment program, it then get out. And unfortunately, uh, many of them then get back into their addiction. They relapse, uh, as people say. And instead, we want people to be able to have that longer term support system, including in some cases housing, to be able to get through to the other end where they can get back to work, back to their families, get back to a sober, clean life. And, and there's a lot of great uh, victories there. You know, there's some terrific stories of success, but it does require a little more time and effort. So we're trying to encourage that. And the federal government wouldn't be paying for it all, but would be encouraging it and helping it. So that's a, a possibility, I think, uh, even in the short term here, given what's happened. And also there's some legislation that Senator Manchin and I have, Joe Manchin from West Virginia, that makes it clear that we can continue to permanently make these substances like fentanyl illegal. Believe it or not, there are copycat fentanyl products out there that by the end of January would no longer be illegal, which we just can't allow to happen. So that I think is is uh, an opportunity. And then Senator Whitehouse and I have CARE 3.0, the Comprehensive Addiction Recovery Act 3.0, where we make some changes given what's going on, including encouraging more telehealth that's less expensive and very effective, it turns out. Uh, one of the few silver linings in an otherwise dark cloud of COVID-19 is that telehealth actually is something that people were forced to use and it was quite effective in some cases. So I think there's a chance there, Scott, to get some good bipartisan work done. I know there is. And my hope is that you know Congress will be able to, at least on this issue, as we did on infrastructure, be able to come together and, and you know make some positive changes for the people we, rep we represent. Uh, let's let's shift to infrastructure because uh, this is a huge achievement for you and uh, a bipartisan achievement in the Senate. Nineteen Republicans joined with the Democrats to do it in the Senate. It became more of a partisan lightning rod uh, when it finally passed the House and was signed by the president. But you saw the wisdom in this and you've touted the economic benefits of it as you uh, 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 wrap up your your Senate service here. Is this infrastructure bill uh, as significant a legacy point as a lot of us think it might be? I mean, between our two states, there's a a major bridge that needs a work that looks like it's finally going to get uh, get the attention that it deserves. But that's going to happen all over the country, thanks to the work you put in on this. Yes. Yeah, I think infrastructure is incredibly important. It's always been bipartisan. And the reason is that roads and bridges and railroad tracks and ports and airports uh, and broadband are things where we've been able to come together as Republicans and Democrats. What happened in this case uh, is that the Biden administration put out a proposal that was not bipartisan. It was quite partisan. It said, we're going to have huge tax increases and huge new spending, uh, most of which was not related to core infrastructure. And so we saw that um, it was $2.65 trillion. This is back in March of this year. And Democrats and Republicans alike, in particular, Senator Kirsten Sinema and myself at for starters. And then uh, we grew out from there, including Joe Manchin, Bill Cassidy, and Susan Collins and others. And we, we created a, a group of 10 Republicans and 10 Democrats who said, you know, we're going to get this thing done. And the way we did it is we got rid of all the tax increases, which would have hurt the economy in March, just coming out of the worst of the pandemic. And we pulled out just the core infrastructure. So roughly $450 billion instead of uh, the one or $2.65 trillion and took out the so-called what they were calling uh, Biden calling human infrastructure, kept it to really core infrastructure and got it done. And I just think it's a good example of where you can work together. Unfortunately, when it got to the House, it got very partisan because Speaker Pelosi decided to link it up with the, the Build Back Better, you know, this bigger so-called reconciliation bill that no Republican can support. 
And she basically stalled it for four or five months, but eventually we got it done and got it done separately. And as you know, the fight goes on with regard to reconciliation. Now, when I think about your your career and, and some of the things you've been part of, the the uh, drug epidemic legislation, I mean, this is landmark legislation, the infrastructure bill, major, major legislation. 17 tax cut. Uh, President Donald Trump, Republican, did cut taxes, promised. I thought at the time, uh, told you so at the time, you were one of the most effective spokespeople for the Republican Party in making the public case for that. I wanted to go back to that tax cut bill because it's a core tenet of being a Republican, and we did what we said we would do. Has it worked out the way you thought it would, better, worse, about, about what you thought? I mean, a few years in, how does it feel now having uh, cut taxes several years ago? Well, Scott, great, great question. I had high hopes for it. As you know, I always believed in it, and I think it worked as well or better than expected. Let me give you just a couple quick numbers. Um, and, you know, I'm, I'm proud of what we did as a Republican caucus. Uh, I'm, I'm proud of the impact that, it, that, it, that it's had, yeah, but particularly proud of what it did in terms of making our economy more of an opportunity economy. Unemployment numbers, as you know, were very low uh, coming into the pandemic because of that 2017 tax bill primarily. Uh, we had a situation where for Blacks, Hispanics, uh, other folks, the, the disabled as an example, we had historically low unemployment, never had such low unemployment. Overall, we had a 50-year low in unemployment. We had the lowest poverty rate in the history of our country since we started keeping track of it back in the 1950s. We had wage growth for the first time in a couple of decades in Kentucky or Ohio. You actually had real wage growth above inflation. February of 2020, as we got into the pandemic, was the 19th straight month of wage growth over 3% per annum. So we had some great things going on there that were very much related to the tax legislation. Some of it was about making our country more competitive. So we were creating more jobs and more investment here. And we brought back you know, trillions uh, of dollars in terms of money coming back into our country because we made the United States a better place to invest and to grow jobs. So I'm, I think it worked extremely well. And I'm very concerned that now in this Build Back Better legislation, so-called reconciliation bill, Democrats are talking about unraveling uh, a yeah. lot of that tax reform and tax cuts. And it wasn't just about tax cuts, it was about tax reform to make us more competitive. I wish they weren't contemplating that because I think that's exactly the wrong way to go. I think we ought to go back to what was working for the pandemic. And again, creating so many opportunities for people. When I talked about the wage growth, most of that wage growth was among low-income and middle-income Americans. And that's exactly what we had hoped would happen, that this would open up economic opportunities by encouraging people to invest and save more and, and create more jobs. And by the way, in terms of the revenue coming in, we had slightly more revenue coming in in 2019 than we had in 2018 as this become, became implemented. So it didn't reduce revenues because of the economic growth that actually increased revenues somewhat, not a lot, but somewhat, and created the potential for a lot more revenue growth going forward with more growth. So that's, that's the story of the tax cuts and tax reform. It worked. And we Republicans sometimes forget to take a pause and you know uh, think about what we've done and, and how it worked and, and communicate that to the American people. We have a couple minutes left with Senator Rob Portman uh, of Ohio. I wanted to ask you about your service in the government previous to being in the U.S. Senate. You and I crossed paths in the administration of George W. Bush. Uh, you were director of the Office of Management and Budget. You also uh, were U.S. Trade Representative. Obviously, the party, Republican Party, has changed a lot over the last several years and since we served in the Bush administration. But um, I was curious about your perspective on what you've seen over the course of your service from Bush and 
then serving in the Senate under uh, President Donald Trump. And now where we see the party headed, uh, hopefully back to majorities in, in the midterms next year. What do you think the prospects are in the strategy for the Republican Party ought to be to keep different coalitions of the party together? Uh, does it need a unifying agenda in order to do that? Do you prescribe a, a, a policy agenda for this party, a platform, uh, if you will, or, or is it enough to simply be an opposition party uh, in the midterm elections? Well, first, Scott, uh, it was great working with you in the Bush administration. And although uh, Karl Rove got a lot of the credit, uh, <laughs> you were one of the political whiz kids there on everything we did that was successful. Um, and it was it was fun watching you work behind the scenes at the White House. And then since then, to see you out on the airwaves, you know, communicating the message. And as you know, I'm kind of a policy wonk. So maybe that uh, informs my opinion on your, your question. But I think we got to be about policy. We got to be about what we're for, not just what we're against. If we're just against what the Democrats are doing, which is frankly pretty easy right now, given what's happening in our overseas adventures like Afghanistan, what a disaster there and what's happening in terms of the tax increases that they're trying to push through and the big spending. And, you know, frankly, how the administration has handled the border crisis, which is to try to ignore it in, in essence. I think there's a lot to talk about there. But what we're about as Republicans is uh, creating that opportunity economy to give everybody a chance to get ahead. And, and that means smart tax policy and regulatory policy, smart health care policy to give people health care, but use the private markets more to get costs down. Uh, we're the party that believes in having a border that, that is, you know, a sovereign country should have a border. Uh, that's pretty, pretty simple, but also allowing legal immigrants to come to this country because they enrich our country, always have, as my uh, forebears did and yours did. So I think we have, as Republicans, lots of great stuff to talk about and then what we're for and how we would, as a party, uh, be able to keep our, our coalition together moving forward on that. Now, when I look at the election of Len Youngkin in Virginia, I see that coalition coming together. I see yes. what he did in terms of the Hispanic vote in particular. You know, there are a lot of folks who are in the uh, Hispanic community who identify with the, the Republican views on work ethic and um, faith and uh, family values and so on. And I think that's an opportunity for, for the party. I think young people is a great opportunity. The Republican Party ought to be for a cleaner and a stronger uh, approach to the economy. As you know, I've done a lot of work in that area, too, on conservation, on market-based solutions to reducing CO2s that make sense uh, using our resources in the ground in Ohio and Kentucky and elsewhere, but doing it in a smarter way, energy efficiency. We're taking a lead on that here, and, and there's a lot more we can do to make our buildings, our, our manufacturing facilities, our transportation networks more efficient. So we should be for that, and, but we shouldn't be for the big government approach because that has not worked, whether it's in the United States or elsewhere. Uh, and then finally on the military, you know, I'm concerned again, <laughs> we're doing exactly what we do every time a Democrat gets elected as we begin to hollow out our military. Mm -hmm. And if you see the discussion right now on the floor of the Senate about the continuing resolution, which is basically how you fund government for the next year, that's the debate is the Democrats want to spend a lot more in social programs relative to defense. And we got to be sure that we have a strong defense, not because we want to go to war, but because we want to keep the peace. And America has been uniquely able to do that since World War II. We've got to continue to have the ability to project force and to keep up, frankly, with the Chinese and the Russians and the Iranians and North Koreans and others in terms of our technological edge. So those are some of the reasons I'm a Republican. And uh, I think we represent more of the middle of the country and, and you know what most people think. 
And I think, you know, we've got the right policies. We just got to be sure we communicate them better and that, that we don't, you know, just talk about what's wrong with the other party and their proposals, but what's right with a, uh, with a brighter future through some of our policies. I know you have to go here in a minute. I want to respect your time, but I can't let you leave without participating in the famous lightning round. So question number one, short answer yeah. uh, only. Number one, when you go to Skyline Chili, how do you order it? <laughs> I'm a traditionalist. I go for a three-way. And my <laughs> right. family loves Skyline. So my, my son was in town the last month working remotely. And uh, we figured out he went to Skyline four or five times a week. So it was it was awesome. A lot of folks may not know that you are one of the owners of the Golden Lamb in Lebanon, Ohio, the longest continuously running business in the state, one of the oldest in the yeah. country, actually. Uh, there's been a lot of notable dinner guests there. So I have two questions. Number yeah. one, what's the best thing on the menu? And number two, <laughs> is it really haunted? <laughs> well, fried chicken, of course. Uh, my grandfather took the business over 50, for 50 years. He was the innkeeper there back in 1926, took it over. So it's been in the family for 94 years, 95 years. And uh, we love our chicken. Um, there are a lot of famous people who uh, visited there. And there are some un unfortunate cases where people passed away at the end, including a very famous politician who accidentally shot himself trying to prove uh, in a court case he had the next day that, that the person uh, didn't commit a certain crime. So he picked up a loaded pistol instead of the unloaded pistol and shot himself. So there, there are rumors that, uh, that, that he haunts the, the halls. As an example, my mom uh, when she was a little kid lived in the hotel because my grandparents, you know, lived in one of the rooms there. They started off with, with just a kind of an, an old building that, uh, luckily still had a soda shop and rented a few rooms to, uh, traveling salesmen. So, um, she claims that she used to hear some things, uh, back, back in her youth. So, so I'm hearing a yes on haunted. Okay. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you, you're trapped on a, you're trapped on a desert Island and you've got to take one person with you. The choices are Bill Clinton, Barack Obama, or Joe Biden. Who are you taking? With? <laughs> well, Barack Obama is the youngest of the three and the most uh, physically capable, right? Uh, look, I, I've I've enjoyed spending time with all three of those those presidents, uh, former presidents, and uh, and all the Republicans. Also, I've, I've been blessed to know every president since Ronald Reagan, and they're all interesting people, and uh, we could have some great conversations. What's your favorite Christmas movie in the Portman household? Oh gosh, um, it has to be. It's a beautiful life. It's a, uh, um, it's it's a wonderful life. Um, my wife uh, loves that movie, and it reminds her of her father. So she cries through the whole second half of it. Uh, but uh, yeah, it's a wonderful life. All right, final question. I know you're retiring from the United States Senate. Is there anything that would bring Rob Portman back into public service in the near term? Oh, gosh, I don't know. Look, I'm not going to run again for the Senate. I've been doing this for 30 years off and on when you include my uh, time in the first and second Bush administrations. And I never intended to do it this long, to be honest with you. And I love the private sector. I love my family. I, I can't wait to get home full time. We've always kept our home in Ohio. So that's where I'm focused right now. But but I'm not going to stop being involved and engaged in public service. Uh, the opioid crisis we talked about, economic growth generally. I care a lot about trade. I, I want to be sure that I'm staying involved on issues. I want to do some stuff in, uh, in, the, in the academy, do some academic stuff to make sure that uh, young people get to hear from Republicans and not just Democrats and, and maybe hear a little different point of view about how the country can move forward. So I'm, I'm looking forward to it. 
All right. Rob Portman, U.S. Senator from Ohio, one of the best people in our politics today. Thanks for joining us on the Flyover. Scott, thanks so much, pal. Great to be with you. See you, Rob. Great holiday. Take care. Flyover Country with Scott Jennings is a production of Bluegrass Media Lab, coming to you from the heart of middle America, Louisville, Kentucky. If you like what you heard, subscribe to Flyover Country on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you find your favorite podcast. Five-star reviews will help us keep making the content that you love. To find my latest television hits, columns, and other commentary, go to scottjenningsky.com. And you can also find me at Scott Jennings KY on Twitter and Facebook. Thanks for listening and talk to you soon. Ladies and gentlemen, make sure your seat backs and folding trays are in their full upright position. Cabin crew, please take your seats for landing and thank you for choosing Flyover Country with Scott Jennings. 